I don't know what your image is when you think of a sink of soap water, whether instant what work. If you can just imagine morning time, steam coming up, water, soap bottles, bubbles. Good thoughts for some of us. Like, well, it's a it's a, a cleansing thing. I get my hands in there and I'll be warm. And it ought to be that. It ought to be something where things become clean for humans. But what if you're a mouse? And the mouse is scurrying on the counter and falls into the sink where the soap water is. You think, well, Pastor, why would you think such weird thoughts? That That's what happened at our house. So, what normally would be a horrifying thing, I'm going to use it for good. And uh, talk about the principle that's behind this. And that the soap water is the law of God that normally would be a cleansing good thing. It's of God. It's, it's a holy thing unless you're mice. Unless you are humans with broken hearts, with sin. And we get into that law, that soap water, and we choke, we suffocate, we die, we sink. It kills us. We drown. So is the... Sink water, bad? No. It's a good thing. It's a holy thing. But we are as mice, we are at broken hearts. We have sin in our hearts, and that which ought to be a good thing now becomes our death. We need to understand the role of the law. The role of the Old Testament, if you will, the 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 Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the 600-some commandments, prohibitions and commandments given to us. And Galatians chapter 3 does a very concise job of explaining it for us. What is the role of the law? I'm going to ask that we go back again to Galatians 3, and we're going to backtrack a little bit and start with verse 19 and go through verse 25. And and this is the question. What is the role of the law? What does it do? Now, I'm going to use this text, and so consequently, it's not going to be exhaustive. It's not going to explain everything as to the purposes of the law of God. But in relating to salvation, Paul is giving a stab at this and saying, well, this is what the law does and this is what it doesn't do. I found uh, Romans to be a good commentary of Galatians 3, where it unpacks a little bit even further detail, uh, Galatians 3, especially in Romans chapter 7, as it talks about the law. But as we read in Galatians, it it is segmented by these questions. Uh, and so especially as we get to uh, verse 19, we see introduced with this question, why the law? And so it frames the subject of what we'll be talking about this morning, uh, understanding that for us, the law does not perform an immediately good thing, but a long-term 
powerfully miraculous thing for us. So, uh, Galatians 3, and in honor of this being the Word of God, let's stand as we read, starting the verse 19 through verse 25. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You may be seated. So, Galatians are dealing with folks who are coming in and telling them that if you really want to be right with God, okay, great, you entered by faith in Christ, but now let's complete the cycle and let's be a Jew. Let's go ahead and take on the circumcision, take on the dietary laws, take on what the Old Testament says. This is what God's intent was. Just as Moses first came, uh, just as Abraham then came and brought faith, by promise, then Moses came later with the law. So Jesus comes by promise, now let's reintroduce the law again. And that was kind of the thinking that was going on in teaching, and Paul is uh, contradicting that, explaining this in Galatians 3 from the beginning. He says, well, you remember how you started off with Christ? Did you start by the law or did you start by faith? How did you receive the Spirit of God? Did you do it by the law or did you do it by faith? And, and the answer that was given, understood, was that, yes, this was by God's grace. It was done by faith. And he says, well, just as you started it is how we're going to continue this. And then he appeals to Abraham. He appeals to the promise of, of God and how God used that to give righteousness to Abraham. And then in Galatians uh, 3, as we start looking, uh, especially through verse 15 and on, he starts appealing to the Scripture uh, and, and how it itself talks about the law and how the law doesn't perform righteousness or does not uh, give us right standing with God. And so with, with this thought in mind, he goes to verse 19. Why then the law? And he kind of gives some conditions on the law. First, he says, sums up, it was added because of transgressions, because of sin. It kind of, Romans 5.20 is a good verse to go alongside of this. Uh, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so sin, our law comes in, and it has a couple of roles in that it has a curbing effect on the Jews and saying this is what sin is. Let's stay away from this. This is not pleasing to God. But also it has a damning effect uh, on mankind. This is what sin is. See where you stand before God? It makes a bad situation even more terrible before God. And the idea is that we have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to understand our great need before we can ever understand Jesus Christ and grace. And until humans come to the point of understanding their need before God, salvation is lost to them. They don't understand good news until they understand the bad situation we're in. And law does that that job. You remember in grade school, some of you uh, 
uh, had this in grade school where they give you the fluoride and you had to swish it, you know, and that was a weekly occurrence for, for us. We just said pump it, pump that sound. You can hear that sound and uh, swishing it. But we, we had the dentist or the uh, uh, folks come in every once in a while. They would give us tips on how to brush your teeth and what all you need to do. And, and they would make you chew this little tablet. You chew this little tablet after you brush your teeth. And it, uh, then you, you open up your mouth. And it's like your, your mouth is all kinds of red. And what this tablet did is that it uh, exposed or colored the plaque that was still on your teeth after brushing it. And it revealed that I did a sloppy job of brushing my teeth. And so I think, oh, no, i got to go back and, and brush the dye off so I know I've got the plaque off. Well, well, the law, what the law does is it's revealing that sin in our life, okay? And so it just, it colors it for us. So we can see, yes, when I did this, this was uh, displeasing to God. It was breaking His law, okay? Yes, having this statue is sin because I'm worshiping and hoping in this statue. That's a wrong thing. And no, I shouldn't have stolen this. And, and no, I shouldn't have disobeyed my parents here because, oh, that is displeasing to God also. Oh, okay. And so it's revealing all these things about us. It, it was added because of transgressions. But notice verse, uh, as we keep on going, verse 19, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Uh, we've learned that this is referring back to Genesis 12 and the promise given to Abraham that all of the nations would be blessed in his seed. All right. And so it's referring to the offspring, that one who would come. And so it was given as a limited role. Uh, and so if you will, think of the law as kind of the spare tire that you might have when you have a blowout. And the spare tire is okay, but really, you know, you're not supposed to go over 55 miles an hour and get all these stipulations on it and it looks ugly. You know, it's smaller than the rest. It's okay, and you're not going to keep it when you have the real tire come, okay? When the real tire comes, it makes all kinds of sense to take the spare tire off and put the real one back on, all right? So the law comes in and acts as the spare tire until the promise comes, the offspring comes, and it makes all kinds of sense to follow the one that the law has pointed to all this time and, and tells you, run with this. Run with Christ and follow Him. Don't keep the spare on. Alright, so it was put in place through angels. Uh, and evidently, uh, Paul was following a uh, uh, Septuagint version, which was the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, especially as given in Deuteronomy 33 verse 2, Psalm 68 verse 18. And the Septuagint version, they uh, th- these passages look back to Exodus 19, Mount Sinai, God gives the law. And if you remember Exodus 19, uh, when this occurs on Mount Sinai, there's all, there's all this natural phenomena that's occurring. There's, uh, there's lightning and fire and, and there's smoke and it's just a scary sight. And so the Septuagint looks back on that and says that these were uh, evidences of angels that were there. And so Paul takes that tack and says that these were put in place through angels uh, by an intermediary, okay? Intermediary here, I believe, is referring to Moses. Moses was the go-between between God and the people of Israel. And now, the point that he's making is that when you have a mediator, it's because you have two parties. Okay, There's two parties, and there's got to be someone in between to bring the two together. Uh, Moses performed that. But, verse 20, now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. 
It's taken me a little while to figure this out, but this is my take on what this, this passage is saying. The law is contrast to the promise. The law had Moses as an intermediary. The promise did not have an intermediary. There was not a go-between person. I think Genesis 15 is a great picture of this, where God gives the promise to uh, Abraham. And in Genesis 15, uh, we've put it up on the screen here, verse 5 through 17, uh, gives us an interesting account. I referenced this last week. Um, did you know that in the Hebrew, to, the word to make a covenant uh, is, is literally the word cut? We're going to cut a covenant. We're going to cut a deal, all right? Uh, and so that was the word they used. And, and part of the reason goes back to this customary uh, occurrence that would, would take place when a covenant occurred. Genesis 15, verse 5 through 17, gives us an example. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so here's the promise given. He believed it by faith and now he is in right standing with God. He's not just forgiven. God considers him right. Verse seven. And he said to them, I am the Lord. He brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to them, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, lay each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. All right. So essentially, you've got these animals that by length cut in half, and there's a path in between these two these animals, save the birds. They were not cut in half. Uh, and then when birds of prey came down the carcass, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. All right. Now, here's one explanation as to why Abraham was so afraid. Typically, when you cut a covenant, uh, the, the custom was that you would walk through this path of these animals where the blood was mixed together. And the thought was that if I do not perform this covenant, may it be to me as these animals. May I die if I do not hold my part of the covenant. So if God's making a deal with you and he says, cut an animal in between and, uh, you know, walk in between. And if you don't hold up your part, you're going to be as these animals. It gives us a little explanation as to why dread and fear fell upon Abraham. What am I about to enter into with God? But notice what happens here. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As you, you for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Evidently, these are two um, manifestations of God, if you will, some uh, theophanies, a visual uh, of God's presence. And notice two things. Two things go through, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. God walks through, uh, through a visible way, some, in some, some manifestation, twice. Why? Abraham didn't walk through. 
God says, I'm walking through for you, Abraham. I'm going to walk through it twice. So if you don't uphold your part, may it be to God. May it be to God, the consequences of failure in this covenant. God owes up to the obligation of breaking faith in this covenant. All right. So notice there's no intermediary. It is just God making a promise and he ends up making a promise to himself, though the effects of it go to Abraham. So consequently, when we go to Galatians, it says, uh, as, as we're reading, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. There is no intermediary needed because God made a promise with himself. Okay? And, he, and it's unconditional. I just want you to get some of what's being said here. Uh, so, verse 21, you've got the promise of God. It says it's done by faith. And then you've got the law of God. It says you've got to do all these things, 600 some uh, commandments and prohibitions to be right. So, is God got some kind of split personality that he says, oh, Abraham, you know, I really like you. I'm just going to make a promise to you. Moses, oh boy, let me just give you a whole other situation. All right? Bam. Take it. Take the Ten Commandments and run with it. So what's going on? Is God at contradiction with himself? And so notice Paul's reaction, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Carries a shock and horror in there. Uh, and so he's going to tell us, again, why the law enters. The law enters, and, and these are some points I've, I've just taken from Timothy George. I'm not going to claim any originality in this, uh, but these are... Uh, just an outline that I couldn't approve upon. So here it is. The law enters that it might fail. That it might fail. Why did the law come? For failure. <laughs> what? What? Well, for if law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He says the law was not given for this purpose, for you to get right with God. That was not uh, what has happened. In fact, if it could have been, if there was a law that did this, it would have been done. It hasn't been done, therefore the law was not given for this purpose. Is kind of the thought with this. Uh, and so, God never said to Abraham, In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast kept the law. That's not what God said. He said it was done as a matter of faith. Now, interesting. In Deuteronomy, when there's a listing of all these laws, at the end, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 31, verse 24 through 29, it's interesting Moses' attitude about this. When Moses had finished writing the words of law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there for a witness against you. Did you get that? <laughs> this law... It's going to come out to bite you. It's going to come against you. You're going to drown in this. You're going to choke in this. It's going to be a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I've commanded you. In the days to come, evil will befall you. 
because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Even within the book of the law itself was an admission, you guys are going to royally mess this up. You guys are stubborn. That's the Moses' statement there. Not a lot of hope. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 14, Paul looks back on this and says, What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if I had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Bath water or soap water is normally a good thing unless you're mice. And you have no capacity within you to make use of that soap water. So what does a mouse do? You drown. You drown. And you lie in the bottom of that sink. Verse 22. The law comes in and it condemns so that it might save you. We need to know that we are dead. That we have no hope. And it's not... By saying to that mouse, mouse, maybe you should try some more soap. Mouse is dead. Mouse cannot respond. So it's not by some human saying to you, you know what? Maybe you really need to work on your Sunday and make that a special day. You need to stop working. And by stop working and going to church, that'll do it. Will that do it? It'll do it like soap will help a dead mouse. It's not by adding to the law. There's going to be something else. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So it condemns us. It's interesting that the Jews would have taken all the laws of God and they used them to separate themselves. This is how we know that we're different. This is how we know that we're Jew. We're, we're circumcised. We have dietary laws. We have uh, the Sabbath day. It keeps us separate. It keeps us other. It keeps us uh, as, a, as a fence to keep us from the godless Gentiles around us, the pagans. And what they had no idea of knowing is, yes, it was a fence, but it was barbed. It was barbed. And it wasn't a prison just to separate them. But it was a prison to condemn them. It was a prison to condemn them. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Notice the word scripture. It's not talking about one verse. That word scripture means the entirety of the written revelation. The entirety of writings have come together with one theme. And that is we are imprisoned in our sin from Genesis 3.15 on when it talks about sin entering to the world all the way through. So when Romans 3 verse 10 and 18 comes, Paul writes about the state of mankind. He quotes from Psalms. He quotes from Isaiah. 
He quotes from Ecclesiastes, and he could have quoted from all the scriptures, and all of them has the same theme. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is what the entirety of Scripture has to say. And you think, well, really, Pastor, you've got some bad folks around here. But, you know, that's not me. I'm glad you're preaching this to them. Is so-and-so here? They need to hear this. Listen, when we take the world and we take our life that God has made for his glory, for his purposes, and we take that focal point and move it away from God and move it to anything else, then every word we say will be as poison. Really, really, what if I said, I love you? I love you, Jeffrey. Is that, how is that poison? When I say I love you, because I want that affection to reflect more about me, because after all I see this world revolving about me, that the very words of I love has become poison because it has nothing but the object of myself behind it. That's fine and dandy if the world was made by me and for me, but it wasn't and it isn't. It's made for God. These things become as poison, as an open grave. So the scripture has imprisoned us. It's as that prison warden over us. So that, why? Why are we prisoned? Why are we condemned? Why are we walled in by the scriptures? Verse 22. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So that we can understand that there is no more soap that will help us. We need someone to resurrect us because we are dead mice in sinks. And we need someone to come in and breathe new life. And we know that a little bit more water and a little bit of soap is not going to help. But we need someone to come in to bring a miracle in our life. We need the grace of God. Think about this, and let me tell you who discovered our dead mouse. It wasn't me. It was my wife. And uh, she discovered it, not by seeing it. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, something, something soft in there. Ah! She's like, ah, you know. I was like, well, you had it in your hand. Why don't you just put it in the trash can? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, she didn't do that. She just dropped it, and 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 so here's what was needed. We find that repulsive and disgusting. But I'm going to tell you that the difference between my wife and that mouse is minimal compared. To our sin and who we are before God. When the Bible says that our righteousness, our self righteousness, are as filthy rags before God, 
we need to understand the degree of detest of God has for sin. But could you imagine, as ridiculous as it might sound, my wife coming in and giving CPR to a dead mouse? <laughs> I had a neighbor that did that. <laughs> but can you imagine that it worked? I just follow the image. God lifts us up and breathes life into us again by Jesus Christ. It's what's called regeneration, the Spirit of God coming into our life, breathing a new life in us. We are now a new creation, and we operate by the promise of God and His grace working in our life. It is a miracle. So the law condemns that it might save. We are judged rightly to be dead before God. So that when God comes and saves us, we are all the more amazed. And we understand it was by God's grace, not by a few extra strokes or some more soap in our life, that God has done these things. Martin Luther said that God wounds in order to heal. He kills in order to make alive. Now before faith, verse 23 came, now before, uh, verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive in the law. Now the faith here is not talking about faith in general, because Abraham had faith, and that was definitely before the law. But what he's talking about here is the new covenant faith, a New Testament faith, the faith that flows from entering in with God, that flows out of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, this new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. Before uh, this faith came, we were held captive under the, the law, so that that uh, prison warden image imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24 tells us what else the law does. The law disciplines that it might set free. This is captured by this image of verse 24 of a guardian. So then the law was our guardian. This is different from being held captive, the prison warden motif there. But in verse 24, it's, it's, a, it's a different image it's we don't have a word that comprehends or correlates to this word uh but if you can imagine uh someone like a, a guardian a babysitter um but yet a disciplinarian uh the the way they would do things as a wealthy family in rome or greece would uh, after having a newborn baby would hand the baby under the charge of a wet nurse uh who would care for that baby until uh, they were so old enough not to need a wet nurse, and they would go to a, an older woman, a nanny-type person, who would uh, care for the basic needs of that child until they were around six. And then they would go into the hands of this, this guardian, um, this pedagogues uh, is, is kind of the, the Greek term for it. It is the, someone who would, uh, is charged with the supervision of this child from age six to uh, about adolescence, charged with the supervision, the protection the discipline of this this uh, child until their adolescence. They would teach them manners, round-the-clock round supervision, and round-the-clock protection, often employing corporal punishment, spankings uh, of whatever corporal punishment they had in mind, hitting off the top of the head. I don't, I don't know what they would do. But it had this image of, I'm not messing with them. All right, They're a strict disciplinarian. I'm under their guard. And so he says the law is that guardian, that disciplinarian, until 
Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And so when that child reached uh, past uh, adolescence and to the age of adulthood, then they would be presented to the father, to the mother, and say, now you are an heir and you can enjoy the full privileges of what it means to be a son in this wealthy family. And so when Christ comes, is letting us know that the guardian, the law that has been curbing us and directing us and telling us what is wrong and what is right is now putting us into the capable hands of Jesus Christ and by His Spirit He comes in and the law of God is written upon the tablets of our heart. Now we have the enablement uh, by a new heart, a new love to do the law of God, not to depend upon the law of God, but now we can love the Lord our God with all heart, soul, and mind and strength because God is giving us a new heart through Jesus Christ. This is the work that he's doing. So, verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. (laughs) So, God saves dead mice. Gives to them life. And says, this curse that you bear now is upon Jesus Christ, the curse bearer, Galatians 3.13. He's borne it for you so that you can be forgiven. And now I call you right and I give you a new heart, new life. You have new capabilities. And so now you desire, you desire the soap water. You desire God and his life. So we do not go to church. We do not obey our parents. We do not honor the Sabbath day. We do not forsake idols so that we will be right with God. It's not why we do it. We do it because we want to. Why do we want to? Because God gives us a new heart. How did he give us a new heart? He gave us the Holy Spirit. How could he give you the Spirit of God? You are not... Right before him. How did that happen? He gave me the spirit of God because he took the sin and the curse, the grossness of who I am spiritually and put it on Jesus Christ. Why did he put it on Jesus Christ? Because he is a God who is holy, just, and loving. Merciful. All compassionate. But yet just God. This is what we call the gospel. It is good news. But it is only good news until we understand the bad news that we're in. And the law does that. For those who forsake the law of the Old Testament, Romans tells us that there still is a law upon themselves, that they give themselves, whether it's to say, I am going to be true to whatever I say, I am going to be at least consistent with who I believe, what I believe. But even in that, they are inconsistent and they're prideful. They take pride. And that at least I'm not like them church people. Yeah, you know what? You are. Because it seems that in your statement, you are as prideful as the church people. Which is the root of sins. It is the root of the problem before God. It is the root of the problem before God. And thus you do stand before God condemned like we. And the solution is not by going to church. It's not by swimming in the water. The solution is found. In Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. 
Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Salvation is for desperate people. It's for desperate people. And if you're not desperate, it's because you're living in a dream. I'm going to pray the law of God breaks open the dream. And that you can see life as it is before him. Let's pray.